0: Chapter, and we're going to begin with verse six. But what I want to do is just read the the verses before this, and we'll see how far we get in this chapter. Um, I have some things I want to show you uh, related to the first five, four or five verses here, and then if we have enough time, uh, we'll read to the end of the chapter and uh, just comment on a few of the verses, but in verse 1, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward." Um, I'll read this from the Amplified. For if the message given through angels was authentic and proved sure, and every violation and disobedience received an appropriate, just, and adequate penalty. An example I gave you last week was uh, the angel, when the angel came to Lot in Sodom. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And I may come back to this verse later because I believe there's something here for us, uh, but we're not going to look at that today. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come wherever we speak. Now I want to read from verse 6 to verse 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Thou made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and to set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now, to the casual reader, maybe... You read this and you've seen this, uh, I don't know, but to the casual reader, including myself, when I read this in the past and not really studied it, I applied verse 6 through 8 to Jesus. And that's okay because that all does apply to Jesus. In particular, the reason I believe that we apply this to the Lord is because of the phrase here in uh, verse six, "What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him?" The phrase "son of man" is used uh, in different places in the New Testament, in particular Matthew, and in some places in Luke, and it's referring to Jesus, the Son of Man. But if we go back, this is a direct quote from Psalm 8. And I want to show you something here because I think it's quite something. Although when I study the Bible, I always think it's quite something. So I always say that. (laughs) But the word or the phrase is also used here, and we'll look at it in a minute. But the phrase, Son of Man... Is used, for example, in Ezekiel 93 times, where God says, Son of man, go prophesy. Son of man, say this unto the children of Israel. Son of man, do this. And it's all referring to Ezekiel, not Jesus. In Job, it quotes this too, and says, the Son of man, referring to man. So the usage of that term is not exclusively applied to Jesus throughout the Bible. Every place in the New Testament that I checked where it used the phrase Son of Man applied to Jesus with the exception of Hebrews 2. In Psalm 8, which, which the writer is directly quoting, this psalm does not mention the Messiah, It doesn't mention Jesus. It's dealing exclusively with the glory that God gave to man. In Psalm 8, verse 3, and I hope you can see this as we continue through Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? and the son of man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower. I'm going to read this and come back to verse 5. He made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and so on. And, and whatsoever passeth through uh, the pass of the sea. So he's talking about the dominion that God gave to man. Now, I find something very interesting here. And I didn't know this. And usually when I study, I find things I never know because the Bible is just so, you know, there's so much there. But it says here in verse 5, Speaking of, of mankind. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now, the word here, angels, is the word Elohim. The word Elohim in the, in the Old Testament is the word that's translated God. It's translated uh, gods. It's translated, or, or, or the intent behind it many times is uh, judge, ruler. But the thought is here, by using that Hebrew word, and you can check this out if you don't believe this, it means godlike. Now, I believe the translators kept Psalm 8 the same as Hebrews for readability for the casual reader. So, whenever a person says, Okay, this is a, a quote from Psalms, and I go back and read that, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Um, they wouldn't be confused and say, well, hey, this isn't a direct quote, but there's things going on in the language there between uh, the Hebrew and the Greek. The Amplified says this, Yet you have made him but a little lower than God, and have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, let me read this from the Amplified. When I view and consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained and established, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of, man, and the, son of the earth-born man that you care for him? <laughs> I'm going come back to this. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, And you have crowned him with glory and honor, and made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. Now go back to Genesis for a minute, chapter 1. So he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of man that you visiteth him? God visits us, visits man every day with mercy. With grace, uh, with kindness, with friendship, and so on. This is the Lord visiting mankind. Now, to understand what he's saying here, that you've made him, as it says, a little lower than God. You have to see Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So there you have the image and likeness of God given to man. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God, in creating mankind in the very beginning, gives him, as we see in Hebrews, this honor and glory. He gives him honor and glory through the dominion, or the power, or the sovereignty, if you will, over all of creation. That's what God gave him in the beginning. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over. So he gives them this authority, and he says, Here, now you have dominion over Everything. We don't really understand how much man has lost through the sin in the Garden of Eden. He has lost this ability to have dominion in the way God so desired, and had ordained it in the beginning. And you can see that with the abuse of power, you can start on the, the, the level where we are in, in marriages, in the home, family, um, at work, with the local authorities, with the state authorities, with the federal authorities, and so on. There's this abuse of power taking dominion over people or things in a way that was never in the plan and purpose of God in the beginning in Genesis. So you see, you see this abuse, so to speak, of authority or power. But yet, God, in the beginning, before man sinned, he says, Here, this is put in your hand have dominion over it all. I've made you a little lower than the angels or a little lower than God because you're in His image. And we don't see how far man really fell. Darkened mind. They say that we only use 10% of our brain power. And some of us a lot less than that. How much was lost when man sinned? We we you know only catch a glimpse of that. So he says to subdue, or to that word means to make subservient, um, to have supremacy over all of the creation of God. Back in Hebrews. So he says here, but one in a certain place, verse 6, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And he's talking about here now, uh, probably in the very beginning, and even throughout the ages, how God has come and visited mankind, even in a fallen state. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. That's that's because of where he set man when he created man, in this position of sovereignty or, or authority under God, but over everything else. Crownest him with glory and honor. And you know, I was thinking about this. How does Jesus rule us? Or put it another way, in this age, okay? How does Jesus make his followers subservient to him? Well, governments they make people subservient through authority. Uh, Some uh, elements in the world, some organizations, um, certain religions make their followers subservient through authority. But the scriptural pattern, Jesus makes us subservient through love. We love Him and become subservient to Him. Because he first loved us. And so there is this crown. Man, he's crowned with honor and glory. And and the crown, any crown, is never received or cannot be received without this element of being subservient. and did set him over the works of thy hand. Verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that alone, to me, I was just thinking about this. I was reading over this this morning. (laughs) How's that say that again? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And Psalm 8, if I remember correctly... Verse 6 says, you have put all things under His feet. What's that mean? When God created man, He put all things under His feet. Of course, we realize all the things of this world because that was the limitation of man back then. But how far-reaching... is the all things that God has placed in subjection under man. I personally believe that God was starting in this place here with Adam in the garden and there was going to be I don't want to say no limit. The sky's the limit, no. As far as being under God, that whole realm of, of creation. If you look at what God created in Genesis, He created the worlds, He created the universe, the stars, the galaxies. And I believe it was in the plan of God in the very beginning to, in His time, through His will and purpose, to give that whole sovereignty, that whole rule of that to mankind, to Adam. But see, because of the sin of man, there was a break there, and now the proper use of the authority and dominion is gone from man until you become redeemed. And then God shows you what it means to To rule, and that means to be a servant, really. And he puts things back in proper perspective. And those of you here today that are walking with God, all things, we have not yet seen all things, it says in this verse, we didn't get to that yet, put under man. But someday, the extent of that, the width and the breadth of that promise Will extend throughout, I believe, the universe. There's not going to be limited to this earth. And I don't understand it. Don't ask me about it. I don't know. I believe it's, it's just a, a wide and a broad thing that God is going to bring to pass. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, I don't understand that. That was, that was what God was seeing in the beginning. See. But now, we see not yet all things put under him. See, that's, that's not come to pass yet. God's still on the, the, the right track in, in what he was doing with Adam. Sin entered. It seems like there was a failure, but that never... Uh, derailed God's purpose. And now he's going to achieve that purpose and he's going to fulfill that which was written in the Word and that which he had put under Adam's uh, dominion will be fulfilled in the future, eventually. And we will be a part of that. So the writer here to the Hebrews lays this out see he's quoting from psalm 8 and the 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 jews who were christians were well aware of what it said in the old testament and when he says this they knew what he was talking about when he used the word that god had made you a little lower than elohim And so now, he's laid this foundation, and he's going to say, okay, now this is what God was doing here with with man. This is what he wants to do. There are three main ideas here. Beginning of verse 8, you can see God is talking about man or the creation of man. The latter part of verse 8, man entered into sin, he entered into frustration, and He entered into defeat. And then when you move on in verse 9, into that place of defeat and sin, where man lived, that is the very place that Jesus comes to. So, He paints this picture. Okay, this is the the purpose of God here for mankind. But, Let's not be caught up and and focus upon mankind. Verse 9, But, or in contrast to that, but we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. I was thinking, you know, you have many different religions in the world, and you have people that aren't involved with any religion that sit down and they read the Bible. How many remember Madeline Murray O'Hare? Atheists, the ones that started the atheist movement in, in this country. Sat down and read the entire Bible in a weekend. And when she read the entire Bible, she said, this cannot be true. And and she went on and eventually became an atheist. But you have religions that read the Bible. You have people that sit down and read the Bible. You have Christians that sit down and read the Bible. But Jesus said... My words are spirit. And so spirit is locked up in the order of the words laid out in the scriptures. And there are people who have brilliant minds. There's a man who, who's on TV. He's a Christian. He has every verse in the Bible memorized and he can quote 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 any verse anywhere anytime and there's another man who um, answers all these questions on the radio brilliant mind Uh, can read scripture almost like a photographic memory wouldn't it be nice to have that read something here read something there remember them both but see Just because a person can do that, just because a person reads the Bible, does not mean that spirit that is locked up in these words is brought out. So you can can use your mind and read things and comprehend things in your mind and put things together, but that does not necessarily mean that that is spirit. And so God has placed things here in the Bible that are spirit, and we can only receive of that as God unlocks that and gives it to us. And so the writer here says, But we see Jesus. Well, okay, what's that mean? We see Jesus. That means that uh, we know that He died for our sins and so on and so forth. No. There is to be in the Christian through the work of Christ in your heart. A work that He does so that your heart is focused upon Him. So that when you do whatever you do during the day that you must do, and you can't think about the Lord, still, because of what God has done in here, Jesus is the focal point of your life. And it doesn't matter what's going on around, still you come back to that focal point. It doesn't matter how much we know, we learn, we don't know, it always comes back to, but we see Jesus. It's an inner thing. It's not mental gymnastics, it's not working anything up, it's not striving at all. But it is an inner work that God does that your heart is toward Him and you see Jesus. Many times when people come up front here, and I'll go and pray for them, and and, and one of the things that the Lord lays on my heart quite frequently is that you know, People get involved with circumstances and, and all these different things and, and that's the way it is. We are, we're all in circumstances. But see, circumstances can move us over to the side so where they or other things become the focal point of our heart. And the Lord may have me pray for someone that they would see Jesus. So that in the inner man it's, it's like you're you're locked on you know you're, you're locked in and you, there's no effort to it uh, it's not even I don't even know how to explain it it's not even you have a part to play in it but it's all the Lord brought out from from the inner man. But we see Jesus. Now, I can't teach that. I can can say that. But you you, and any any other Christian, they must learn that. But I like how he says this. Now he's going to shift it. He's going to to make uh, some comments now related to Jesus. You'll see how they're very similar to to, um, what we looked at Psalm 8. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So that here Jesus comes now to where man is And now He is going to be made a little lower than He was before. And He is going to take on Him the nature of man, the physical nature, not the sinful nature. And that is the only way that Jesus can become a true high priest. He must become a man. And he tastes death for every one of us. He didn't look at it and say, yeah, I know what that is. No, he actually reached forth and took it and tasted it for you. For you. Wow. The one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father... With all the glory, and he prays this, I, I think it was in John 17, where he talks about his former glory with, with the Father. All of that glory, he sets aside all of the creation he created. And he comes down to where man lives. Awesome. the glory of God he places aside. For you. Amazing. It's wonderful that Jesus would do that for us. Verse 10. For it became him... Or another way to say that, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things. Now there's three things here I want to show you in this verse. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Turn to Colossians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Or That word there means they're all things are held together. That that is what we looked at in in the beginning of Hebrews. All things held together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So so in, in verse 10 in Hebrews here, for it was fitting for him, for all things were made by him, and for him, in bringing many sons to glory. Now this, this verse here could teach just on this verse. So God here has this same thing in his view that he had when he created Adam before Adam sinned. And now, through the suffering that man has suffered, all this sin that we've had to deal with all of our lives, being born with a sinful nature and what have you, God never lost the view that he had from the very beginning. And that's why it says here that he's he's going to bring many sons to glory. Any sons to glory. Now turn to Romans. I'm going to get there real quick here. Romans 9. When I think about this, this is just truly amazing. (laughs) The plan of God, the plan of salvation is truly amazing. Only God could pull this whole thing off. (laughs) Only Him. He's going to bring through Christ, through Christ's death, resurrection. He's going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It doesn't mean heaven. Romans nine, verse twenty-three. And, he, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory God has prepared every Christian unto glory Romans 8 18 Paul says, "I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us." Now the, the word glory, you cannot I, I can give you a few meanings of the word, but that's just a, just a very small beginning point. People in Christian circles. When they refer to glory, I'm going to glory, they mean heaven. But when it's used in the Bible, that means abundance or richness. And so, so God is working, he's never abandoned his original plan, but he's working now with Christians to bring abundance and the riches of Christ in them, because here in in Romans, I'm not there now, but it says that it cannot be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us, so that God is working in, in our hearts and lives to bring this abundance or riches, or He's there to enrich you, and that enrichment... Will be revealed someday. Shall be revealed in glory. It's going to be shown. It's going to be seen. And so the writer to Hebrews says that he's he's bringing many sons unto richness. Now, if you've been a Christian for any time, hopefully, if you've been a Christian for fifteen years. 20 years and you've been walking with the Lord that you have a better understanding of what that means not not a head understanding but a heart understanding to where you know that the, the grace of God has been upon your life and you know that he has enriched you not because of what you know but because of um, what you can sense he has done in the inner man. So that there is to be this, this richness. It's to be an ongoing thing in our lives. And, you know... You talk about doing the will of God. You talk about all these different things that we talk about in church. And we don't really see, because, see, these things are all veiled in flesh. We don't see the work of God within us. The majority of the work of God that he's done in every one of your hearts here is, for the most part, unseen. Mostly it's unseen by other people. Sometimes you can catch a glimpse. Have you ever, you know, looked at someone and and you can just see the glory in their face? Because of, you know, whatever. The Lord shows you that. But for the most part, you don't see that. I don't see the richness that Christ has, has given to you. But sometimes you may yourself experience something that God has done within you. But see, that's all what he's talking about here, bringing many sons to glory, to richness. That's why it's so important to walk with the Lord because we don't really see this. We don't understand and grasp it. And that's why sometimes we turn to the left or the right, maybe not you, but I'm just saying in general, Some. Christians turn to the right and left, you know. They think it doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. The final outcome matters. Now, I'm not saying that to put anybody in bondage. I'm just saying that to encourage you that if you go through things, it's okay because God is putting the riches of Christ. Now, what, what's the riches of Christ? <laughs> It's so far, you know, I like this here because, you know, you, you see there's a vastness to that, that overlay there of the stars. That's just one little section, teeny little section of the universe. Millions of stars. And, and everything created, everything cannot be compared to the riches of Christ that he has And he's trying to put some of that in you and I. That's the gospel. Now, that's not that we we are self-contained vessels. You know, we are to give. That's that's the point. But this is tremendous. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. (laughs) This is awesome. Whatever, I can't think of any other words to say. But you know, when you read some of these things, you say, Lord, if that doesn't get someone excited about Jesus Christ, nothing will. In bringing many sons unto glory, now this is another thing here, to make the captain or the author, how does that say that? Um lost my place here. One second. Uh, two, ten. The pioneer. The author, the captain, the pioneer of their salvation or or their our salvation perfect through suffering. The word perfect here means uh, complete or or to bring about the desired end, the goal. Think about this That, that Jesus, as far as, not as far as his character, because his character is perfect, but as far as the plan, the grand plan of salvation. Jesus died for us, and in order for for that plan to, to be brought to perfection, see, that is linked to Him bringing many sons to glory. Let's read it all together. In bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete. So as God puts the richness in your life, that is going to be one of the things that makes Jesus, or this plan of salvation, complete. Do you understand that? I don't. (laughs) I read it, but I don't understand it. I hope you've read this. Have you been reading through Hebrews here? Okay, good. I was looking at this verse and I said, <laughs> how in the world am I going to teach this? It's so far out there, but yet it isn't. It's, it's so far out there, but yet it's right in the palm of our hand, so to speak. It's available to the Christian, the richest of Christ. Something. Something. For both he that sanctifieth, that means Christ, and they that are sanctified. Now, now you can teach on sanctification, but that is basically the separation or the process of being separated from sin um, by God's grace. both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. All brought together through the process of of grace. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. (laughs) Jesus, who was on this high, high plane with the Father, In heaven. Comes down where sinful man is. He condescends. Now he's right amongst the pigs in the pig pen. And someone who has come from this high place, you know take for example someone who is is very rich and proper and has has millions and millions of dollars and uh, you know they're living on this higher plane and they come down with you know people that are of the street you know that have no manners and nothing it's it's like they they, they show disdain toward them you know like this won't be around them but Jesus it says that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That, That shows us how far he has come down, and it shows us his heart, that he would not be ashamed to call this sinful man here brethren through the process of redemption. Now he's going to call you brother. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. Now, the writer here is quoting from Psalms and Isaiah and different other places. And again, behold, I and the children of which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. See, he cannot become this faithful high priest unless he, he is brought down and becomes a man. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So, so this word here, deliver, that, that uh, is a subjunctive mood verb. Th- that means the possibility exists. So, so Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death. And you know what the fear of death is, don't you? Where, where people live their life, and they're looking to when they're going to die, and they're afraid of that, that particular time. Uh, when people have a midlife crisis, they, I, I think, not, not always, unless there's, uh, barring some other type of chemical imbalance in their brain, but if they're having a midlife crisis, there's a realization that the time is short, and they're going to die, and there's the fear of death there. So Jesus comes... And he offers this salvation. And the word here, deliver, is a possibility, and it becomes a reality only to those who reach out and take that. So that if the time comes, well, even now we shouldn't have a fear of death, but if the time comes and we are facing death, we will have to deal with that very word, He has delivered us from that. And and, and hopefully, we will not fear death. He has provided, through His death and resurrection, a deliverance from the fear of death for each Christian. Pretty good. Pretty good stuff. For verily, He took not on him the nature of angels. So you still see the, 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 the Hebrew writer here going back to this thought about the angels comparing it to Christ because um, of where the, the, the Jews put the angels. They put the angels very, very high, in a high position. Um, where am I here? For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He became a physical person, like you and I. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to do that. And and, and I like this because it shows the type of high priest he was. Two, Two qualities that stand out, merciful and faithful in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, or that word means to aid, or to help them that are tempted. So the writer here finishes chapter 2 with this idea that Jesus um, suffered being tempted, And because of that, now He is able to help you when you are facing temptation. The plan of salvation is pretty wonderful. And I hope that you you got a little glimpse of the glory of Christ and that which He wants to do with you personally in putting His richness in you. Good thing. Good yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll stop there and continue it next week.